Welcome back to another episode of Fine Answers. Today we have myself, Matt Stead, financial advisor at Sachetta Callahan, George Leakakis, who is a CPA here, and Mike Callahan, who is a partner. Um, and today we wanted to continue our discussion about the book Psychology of Money, written by Morgan Housel. And I think today to start us off, I I wanted to talk about the you know there's the old saying money can't buy happiness, and I kind of call bull on that. And the reason I do is you know when people think about that they think about money buying a new boat or a new car or whatever in into that i agree money can't buy happiness cuz you get that boat you get that car and then you just think to, on to the next thing but something that money can buy that people don't really realize is it can buy you freedom and it can buy you time and i think that is true happiness right cuz then you can do whatever you want with your life i think i mean there's a lot there i think you know <laughs> To some extent, you're right. I think, it, you know, it's it all depends. You know, like most things, money. It all depends, right? So if you're basically living at, 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 at the poverty line and you're working two full-time jobs, I don't think anybody would argue that money would not make that person happier, right? And to your point, I mean, partially because it would buy them the time to not have to work two full-time jobs and time to spend with their family and things like that. Right. I think, and studies have shown, at a certain level of wealth, it's the the there's less of a return on it, right? Is And the number I, I have in my head is around $70,000 a year. There's, there's a study that around 70000 you stop getting the same return for every extra dollar you make above that. Mm-hmm. And part of it is because, again, your basic needs are met. You know, you're fairly comfortable, whatever the situation is, and it depends on where you live, I guess, but it, depending on where you live. Um, over and above that, you don't get as much incremental happiness from it. And then you get to like the higher levels of wealth where if you make, you know, a million dollars a year and you make an extra 50 grand, is that really going to change your day-to-day life? Right. Not really. There's not that much return on that income, I guess. Right. Yeah. I guess it just depends on how you look at it. But I, I think that's something that people really undervalue is is how, you know, if they're diligent with their finances and they save in and they do all the right things... It, that can free you up to do what you actually want to do in life. Like, I bet you if you, you interviewed 100 people, 99 of them would say, I'd love to never work again a day in my life. And I think that's what people, that's the happiness, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of it comes down to critical thinking about what it is that would make you happy, right? Most people, the problem is they don't know what that is. So they have this idea that, well, I, I wish I never had to work again, or I wish I could retire today. And then you ask them, well, what would you do every day if you didn't have to work or you were retired? And they don't really know. And they don't really understand that they might be less happy if they woke up every, every day and had absolutely nothing to do and no reason to get out of bed. Because there's plenty of people that are in that situation and are completely miserable right. because they just don't have any purpose. You know, they feel like they don't have any purpose. Um so I think that kind of comes down to kind of what he talks about in the book is is true wealth is the freedom to do whatever you want with whoever you want for as long as you want, essentially. And getting kind of really clear about what those things are is the path to, to being rich, right? It, it's not necessarily a dollar amount. It's what are the things that I really enjoy doing and how do I get to a place where I can do those things whenever I want? Right. So you're telling me... One day I don't have to be sitting here with you, Jamokes. <laughs> but no, no, because this is what you want to be doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so that that's all well and good, but I guess the question for most people are probably sitting there and saying, "Well, how do I get there?" 
right? Like, how do I, regardless of whether, you know, you, you agree with what I said at the beginning that is achieved through the intangibles versus the tangibles, it, whether you agree with that or not, to test that theory, you, ha- you have to amass some, some amount of wealth, right? And he had an interesting saying in the book where in order to not only gain wealth, but to, to keep wealth, you have to basically pair cautious optimism with paranoia. Yeah, and I think that makes sense. I mean, I think, you know, it's, they're two totally different things, right? And the mindset that gets you rich is not the same mindset that keeps you rich. Because if you think about it, most wealthy people, and, you know, I'm listening to another book and he talks about this, most really wealthy people, a lot of them got there through starting a business or investing in a business, but usually they invested in like one business. You know, Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, like all, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, like all these people got rich off of one company. And the first thing they teach you in financial planning is you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket and diversification is the key, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, those people got rich based on taking a lot of risk by having all of this, all of their future tied up in this one company. And they kind of got lucky in the staying rich category that those companies are still successful because there's plenty more people out there you've never heard of that got rich on a company and then never diversified and that company went bankrupt and they lost everything. And so I think, you know, like I say, it's, it, they're two totally different mindsets. The, 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 the getting rich mindset is being optimistic and believing in the future and, you know, building up wealth. And the staying rich is, to your point, kind of becoming a little more paranoid and diversifying and making sure that no one thing is going to bankrupt you. Which begs the question, Mike, how did you get wealthy? Because for all that don't know, Mike was voted class pessimist in high school. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that was a long time ago. Um, well, that's why, right? Because <laughs> if you're pessimistic, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, I guess it's, it's the combination of the two, yeah. right? Is, is optimism about the future, but, you know, somewhat paranoia about being cognizant of the things that could derail it along the way. And that's kind of what it is, right? It's like, y- you want to invest in the stock market. You want to make sure that over time you have a portfolio that's designed to grow, but you also want to look at what are the things that could completely blow this up, right? right. And you don't want to, put all of it in one stock. You don't want to, you know, be too concentrated in any one area. You want to make sure that you have it kind of diversified properly and understand that over time, the compounding is what's going to get you there, Yeah. right? You don't need a great rate of return over a short period of time. You need a good rate of return over a long period of time. Right. You know, and one of the things that he talks about in the book that we've, we might've touched on in the last episode is just the idea that, you know, Warren Buffett to some extent, is as rich as he is because he's been investing for 70 plus years. Yeah. You know, and any one of us that has a 70 year time horizon, if we just invested and left it alone, we would probably do all right for ourselves. Yeah. I mean, so many people think about being a good investor is picking the winners, right? And that's not necessarily the case. Like, Hauser was talking about the Russell 3000, right? JP Morgan looked at the Russell 3000 from 1980 until whenever they did the study a couple of years ago. And only 7% of the stocks in the Russell 3000 made up the gains over those last few years. And those gains were substantial, 73-fold, right, from yeah. 1980 until a couple of years ago. 73-fold, and that was only made up of 7% of those stocks in the Russell 3000, which is crazy, just absolutely bonkers. Because it's like— It basically means any if you picked any of the other 93% of stocks, you wouldn't have made any money. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and—, and I was talking to a client about this earlier today. It's like, that is why 
diversification works, right? And that's why it makes sense. Because over short periods of time, and this is another a quote from a different book, but um, and, the, and the, the quote is basically, diversification means always saying you're sorry, right? And, and it's true, because if you have a diversified portfolio that's properly diversified, when the stock market does really well, you're not going to keep up. You know, and, and almost, and since it does really well most years, most of the time, you're going to feel like you're not doing as well as other people are or whatever it is. But in those years where the market tanks and you don't, that's where the, that's the secret sauce, right? That's what kind of makes up for it. Right. And, you know, to your point, if you, if you own a little bit of everything, you don't have to worry about only owning the 93% because you know that that 7% is in there somewhere that's going to drive your returns for the next 30 years. Right. Yeah, it's true. I mean, just look at what was it um, last year? Was it Apple made up six percent of the overall S and P gain? Yeah, so it was Amazon and Apple together. They made up thirteen percent of the S and P five hundred in and it's two like, companies. That's thirteen percent out of you know. Yeah, five hundred companies. <laughs> it's <laughs> actually actually it's five oh five. I, know, I it's I, not exactly. I learned that. Uh, a couple days ago, and it blew my mind. It's like, why don't you just rename it to the? I guess S and P five hundred five is not a, <laughs> not as catchy. But. And the crazy thing is that app, you know, Apple's the majority of their gains is from one product, and they have a bunch of products, and it's all from the iPhone that they're, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's the the interesting thing is that that sounds kind of crazy, and it, and it is, but it's not. Unprecedented. It's not. It's not unusual. I mean, typically every decade you could look at it and find a couple of companies that made up big parts of the S and P or big parts of the S and P return. You know, they they just rotate. You know, so maybe next decade it's not necessarily going to be Apple and Amazon. It'll be whoever the next big thing is. But to George's uh, point, like most of Apple's gain was made up from iPhone sales. So if you if you think about it in that context, the majority of your return last year in your portfolio from was from the iPhone. <laughs> yeah, like that's just. It's crazy. Well, when you just, look around at how many people have iPhones, it's just understandable. Uh, yeah, I <laughs> right. But yeah, it's just, it's just mind-blowing. The other example was, I mean, I, get, I think we all know Walt Disney, right? He said it in the 30s, Walt Disney went bankrupt. The guy, you know, creating the cartoons, he had 400 cartoons. They were all super expensive, and he financed them at ridiculous terms. And then he comes out and makes, you know, he turns Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs into like, and it made up Com- for it all. Yeah, completely changed the path of Walt Disney. Yeah. And I guess it, it feeds into the idea that, you, you know, you never know what's going to happen. You never know. And the only way to, to ensure that you'll do pretty good over a long period of time is to diversify. Yeah. And, you know, to, to your point, George, I, I think the other thing is people have this idea that, well, I should have just bought Apple in like the 80s or, or the 90s, mid 90s, let's say. And it's like, it's not that you didn't know to buy Apple. It's that Apple was a... a terrible company on the verge of bankruptcy you know what i mean yeah. it was like you could have looked at it and in, in no under no circumstances would that have been a sound investment based on the, the the criteria at the time it just so happens that you know steve jobs is a genius and came up with all these great products and you know now revolutionized just about every industry that they touched um but you wouldn't have seen that coming just based on analyzing the company in the mid 90s it just well exactly i mean how do you buy walt how do you buy disney they're bankrupt in the thirties, <laughs> you know, a couple of years later, they, they create a movie and, and, and they change the whole trajectory right. of where they're going. Yeah. And that's the whole idea of tales that he talks about in the book, right? It's like tales are those outliers in the market 
that drive either most of your return or most of the loss. You know, everybody else just kind of stays in the middle or, you know, it doesn't do much. But it's those one, two, three companies that really dictate the entire market, which is a little scary to some extent, but... Yeah, I mean, I think, in, again, it, it goes back to diversification. That's why you don't you don't load up on any one area or company. You, lo- you just buy a little bit of everything, and you know that you're going to be exposed to the things that drive the returns. Right. And we know that over long periods of time, the stock market actually gets safer to some extent, right? I mean, that's why it's, it's, it's always interesting to me when people compare investing to gambling because it's actually the exact opposite, right, when you think about it. Because gambling, you can hit it big short term, but the longer you play, the more you're going to lose. Right. The stock market, you can lose a lot short term if the market goes down. But the longer you play, the more you're going to make. Yeah. Right? Because it's over lo- the, the longer you stay invested, the more likely you are to make money. And once you get out to a 20 or 30 year time horizon, you, I don't want to use the word guaranteed, but historically, there have been very few to no 20 or 30 year time periods where you would have lost money investing in the stock market. Right. So it's yeah too it's many just interesting. too many people equate the two. I think it's everybody thinks of the market as a gamble, and it's it's really not. And there, he was talking about Hauser was talking about one story in the in the book that what was it was it Livingston I think Jesse Livermore Jesse Livermore back in this this absolutely blew my mind because back in the the stock market crash in 1929 for whatever reason they didn't really get into why but he was short the market meaning he was betting against it. And in one day, he made $3 billion. Obviously, it's, it's um, inflation adjusted, but $3 billion in one day. But so that created almost like a false sense of superiority. And he's like, oh, I know what I'm doing. Da, da, da. He ended up going bankrupt. He made $3 billion in one day, and then he went bankrupt. Why didn't he just cash it? At, like That just blows my mind. Well, and, and it ties back into the, you know what we were talking about a couple episodes ago where it's just never enough for some people. Well, it's also the getting rich versus staying rich, right? His skill set was in getting rich. And when he was that successful, it reinforced the fact that he was very good at getting rich. And it's kind of a combination, right? And, and also, that's just that's just what he did. So again, it's like he his interest was not in getting rich one time and retiring and sailing off into the sunset and doing something else. He wanted to be a stock investor. Right. And unfortunately, to your point, he could have taken one billion off the table and <laughs> maybe just invested the other two <laughs> and been fine. Yeah. But that's just not the makeup of, of people like that. And so he just wasn't psychologically conditioned to stay rich. Right. You know, he just continued to, to invest and gamble. And, and that's where the gambling analogy kind of comes into play, right? Is that investing for retirement in a diversified portfolio is completely different than gambling, but betting on certain individual stocks is is a lot closer, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, people have to understand that those are two very different things, right? Is when we talk about investing, we're not talking about, okay, let's look at the stock market and try to pick a few winners that are going to, you know, go up tenfold over the next few years, like that is gambling because you're just as likely to pick a loser that is going to wipe you out as you are to make the money. Like GE um, for me? <laughs> like, like GE for George. Um, but if you invest in a good portfolio over a long period of time, like I said, the, the longer you leave it alone, the safer it is and the better you're going to do. Yeah. So um, I, I also want to touch on, there's another thing he talks about in the book, which is um, th- that wealth is, is what you don't see. And, you know, I've, I've thought about this for a while because it actually is very much 
it was very similar to uh, a book called The Millionaire Next Door, which is they, they looked at, I forget who wrote it, but they did a, a, a big study on millionaires in the United States and looked at the different criteria that they all had in common. And the, the biggest one was they none of them looked like they were millionaires, right? They were fairly frugal people who lived in fairly reasonable houses. And when you stop and think about it, that makes perfect sense because being a millionaire and having the money in the bank to fund your lifestyle, you only have it because you didn't spend it. Right. So if you have the house and the car and, you know, all these things, you have the things, but you don't have the money. Yeah. Like I just Googled it, by the way, it was Thomas Stanley who wrote that book. If anybody wanted to look it up. Um, the other thing that Hauser pointed out was, okay, so you see somebody, you know, pull into the parking lot in a Rolls Royce, right? And you automatically think, wow, this person must be wealthy. And it's not necessarily the case because you only know one data point about them. Either they bought that car in cash and now they could potentially have no cash left, all the equity in the car, or they have an enormous loan on the car and they're in debt. Like, you know, you, you tend to think that automatically, oh, wow, this person, they drive a Rolls. They got to be wealthy, but it's not necessarily the case. And to your point, it, it's it, a lot of times it's about the things that you don't see that kind of lead to the idea of wealth. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's as financial advisors, we kind of look at things a little differently. But one of the things we, we've talked about a lot over the years is even, you know, athletes, right, is they, they get these huge contracts and then you hear about them going, going broke two years out of the league. And, you almost wish somebody would just sit them down and say, you know, all you have to do is put this amount of money in, in investments and earn a decent rate of return. And at, you know, three or 4%, that's going to kick out enough income to, to fund your lifestyle forever, mm. you know, and just nobody does that because again, it's, and there's a quote, I don't, I don't think it was Housel's quote, but somebody said it is everybody says they want to have a million dollars, but really what they want to do is spend a million dollars. And those two things are the exact opposite of each other is if you actually want to have a million dollars to have the freedom to live your life the way you want, then you can't go spend it on cars and clothes and things like that. Right. And then, and then you have Bleacher Report, you know, they had a segment on Tyler Hero, the, the rookie that played in the finals, and he was fantastic. How I spent my first million dollars, that was the segment, and it was a 10-minute video of how he spent his first million dollars. So to Matt's <laughs> point, all you know about Tyler Hero is he has a million dollars less than he used to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. It, it, precisely. And, you know, that's as humans, that's how we're wired too, right? It's like we love the instant gratification. We love going out, buying a new whatever it is, in getting that, and, and it gives you that quick blip of happiness, I guess. But we are not wired to be investors. I think Mike pointed this out before. We're just not. It's just... No, and, and you know, it's, it's evolution, right? We've evolved to be terrible at investing and terrible at, at delayed gratification. And they actually... Um, there's a few things. I mean, they did a study that essentially they looked at human brains and talked about, like, their, their future... It had people talk about their future selves... And the areas of their brain that lit up were the same as if they were talking about a total stranger. Whereas if they talked about themselves in the present tense, completely different areas of their brain lit up. Mm. And it's, it, it kind of basically says that we look at our future selves as, the, as, as a different person. So it's very, very difficult for us to want to save money today for someone that we don't know. Right. You know, it's almost the same as me saying, you know what, why don't you not spend that money and give it to me instead? Right. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense, you yeah. know? Um, 
and you know, it's it's to some extent we have to. Although they did say what they basically did is the more detail that you give that person, the more realistic they become to you. So in other words, instead of just thinking about, oh, I got to save this money for retirement for, you know, my future self, whatever, whoever he or she might be. If you think about, you know, what you want to do, where you want to live, what your kids are going to be doing, what the grandkids might look like, like, if you think about all these things, that character becomes more realistic as yourself and you're more likely to save money. That's interesting, yeah. Yeah, so it's, I guess if, if, if that's something that you struggle with, that you don't want to save money because, you know, why would I give up something today for 20 years from now? Right. Put a little more detail into what you might be doing 20 years from now, and it might be a different story. Yeah, well, yeah I like how he kind of tied the wealth is what you don't see with basically save your money, so don't buy materialistic things, and, you know, uh, independence for, you know, financial independence, which is something you don't see, right? Your, your time... Um, if you have that money saved where you have the ability to not work or take three months off and you have the independence to do what you want, you don't really see that. And and uh, I think I he just he really harps on how saving money is basically the one thing that you can control and and it's probably the most important factor in, in staying wealthy and having wealth. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I mean, it, sorry, go ahead, Mike. You know, I was going to say it's absolutely true that you know when you think about things like your – you know, rate of return and stuff like that. Like most people focus on that and get all worried about it and lose sleep over it. That's the piece that you can't control, right? There's nothing you can do about it. Um, the saving rate, you can, right? So to your point is if you can increase your savings rate, especially in times when the market's down, you're buying more shares at cheaper prices. That's the, the precisely the time that you want to put the most into your investment account. Those things can have a, a bigger influence on your eventual outcome than the rate of return does. But I think it's also important to look at balancing the two. And this kind of ties into a different book, but really just the idea of looking at what are the things that make you happy and kind of, if you're going to spend money on something, spend it on those things. And there's other stuff that we just spend money on. We don't even think about it because it's just, you know, whatever, you know, cable, we, we have a cable bill, we just pay it. We don't really look at, are we pay, using the channels that we're paying for? You know, would we, would it be cheaper to switch to YouTube TV or something else? I'm not saying you do that. I'm just saying, it's something to look at, right? Look at all mm-hmm. the things that you're spending money on that don't bring you any happiness that you just do just because they're there. Those are the areas to cut, right? You know, and look at in increasing that savings rate for sure. Okay. Well, we are going to continue in the near future talking about the psychology of money and talking more about what Housel had to say. Again, this is not any, it's not a promotion of the book. We just thought it was super interesting and, and applied to a lot of what we talk about here at Sacheta Callahan. So until then, Financers is produced and edited by Sachetta and Callahan LLC. All disclosures are posted to our website at sachetta.com forward slash financers. S A C H E T T A dot com forward slash F I N E A M S W E R S. Thanks for listening.